good to have the Vanderharts back. Praise the Lord. Miss them when they're not here. Not just because I have to set up some chairs either. I really, I really do miss them. I encourage you to turn to the book of John, the 21st chapter this morning. As we've been looking the last number of weeks at, at um, stories and illustrations that are unique to the book of John. I told you this, I've told you this several times. In a recent study through the Gospels, I was reminded how unique the book of John is. And how, how it is set apart from the other synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's Gospel has such a, a unique look and gives us many of the uh, parables, many of the, uh, the stories, the, the applications, the teachings of Jesus that are not found in, in the other Gospels. I wondered why until I found out that that's because John outlived the others for so many years. John outlived them by decades. And so during that time where the other, other uh, apostles were, were, had died off, John saw the establishment of the church. It, it exploded during the years that he was living. And, and, but by the time that he wrote his uh, revelation and, and this gospel, the church was no longer predominantly Jews, saved Jews. It was predominantly saved Gentiles. It was overwhelmingly becoming a Gentile church. And as I shared with you, John had such a burden to be able to take this this truth of, of what Jesus offered by his death, burial, and resurrection, his shed blood, eternal life. How can I deliver this to a Gentile mind that has no conception at all of Judaism? It, it, was, it was simple for them to take and explain Jesus as the Messiah to a Jew. That was simply taking a key and putting it in the door and turning it, and it opened up this wealth of Old Testament knowledge they already had. So it was, as long as they were willing to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, it was a very simple step. It was simply a matter of going from unbelief to belief. But to the Gentile, who had no conception of all the Jewish ritualism, all the feasts, the law itself, was so foreign to the Gentile mind, how can I deliver that? And of course, that's what God did in working through John and his spirit. Of course, we find John 3.16. One of the most popular salvation um, illustrations is in John's gospel. As he doesn't take us to any, any Jewish type mentality in that verse. He can take this to anyone and say, here is the solution to your sin problem. It's Jesus. Jesus died and shed his blood in full payment for your sin. Now we're jumping to the last part of the book now. And uh, in fact, in my Bible, uh, right below verses chapter 21, it says epilogue. So it's, it's like a, a little addendum, if you will, an appendix, if you will, to the rest of the book. Let me read you just a few verses here, and then I'll pray, and I'll show you through the, what the Lord's put on my heart. Chapter 21, beginning at verse 1, After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And on this wise showed he himself. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana 
in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a fishing. They say to him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? They answered him, No. And he said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. And I'm going to stop there. We'll, we'll share more in just a moment. But this morning I want to bring a message entitled, Cast on the Other Side. I believe there are some vital lessons taught here in this, can we call it an epilogue to John's Gospel? that I want to share with you this morning. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this time and for the great time of worship we've already had. I do pray, Lord, that you would lead us now and give to us what you would have for us. Lord, you've already set the table, and it's so beautifully decorated. And now, Lord, help us to partake. Give to us, I pray, an understanding of these truths, for we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So following the resurrection of Jesus, he made several appearances uh, to his disciples. And he performed many signs and wonders. It was a time of Jesus confirming what he had told them before he died. The disciples needed once again to firmly believe. You see, that, that, was, that was his theme. You've got to believe. You've got to believe. You've got to believe. Once again, he came to them and says, you've got to believe. There are going to be some things happening that you don't understand. You've got you to believe. After their faith was shaken to the core, he knew they would need that strengthening. In John 20, in verse 29 through 31, it says, Jesus saith unto them, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Now in the chapter we're in, chapter 21, verse 25, again it says, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. <laughs> he concludes the book. Can't imagine. When we get to heaven, will we get to see all those incredible miracles, those signs and wonders? Will he replay them for us? I don't know, but can you imagine what it would have been like living in Jesus' day and following him and seeing all these incredible miracles? These disciples were very blessed men, very uniquely blessed of God to be able to see God's power in such a, an amazing way through Jesus. Now these disciples, however, have gone through a very traumatic time because though Jesus had predicted it numerous times, the disciples were, at least they acted, oblivious to the truth when Jesus was arrested in the garden, taken off and, 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 and endured mock trials only to be the next day crucified on a cross and killed. The disciples 
all forsook him and fled. Their Savior, their Redeemer, their Messiah is dead. What are we going to do now? What are we going to do? We were so excited that we were going to be delivered from Roman domination. Finally, finally, the Messiah has come, and yet he's dead. What are we going to do now? Well, in verse number 2, it says, There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus, and Nathanael of Cana, and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. Simon Peter saith unto them, Here's what I'm going to do. I go a fishing. And they say unto him, We go, we also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. Now, I don't want to be too hard on these disciples. It's because I'm convinced that if I were living at this time, I would have made some of the very same blunders as did the disciples. I would have had the same difficulty at believing as did the disciples. We have the benefit of the scriptures in total. They didn't have that. They had been taught repeatedly by Jesus, and yet they still were unwilling to take that final authoritative step of belief. All right, Jesus, we don't understand how this is going to happen, but you told us it's going to happen, so we believe you're going to come back from the dead. I don't understand how, but we believe it. Well, they didn't believe it, apparently. And after Jesus did come back and he showed himself, I believe they were still reeling. Their minds, their emotions were still reeling from what they'd been through. So Peter said, I got to go back to normal life. I got to go back. That, that, I was a fisherman. I knew what I was doing there. I, I, I understood fishing. I understood getting up and, 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 and fixing my nets, spending all night long on the boat fishing. I understood that mentality. I knew how to talk fish. I understood the language. But what I've been through these last three years was Jesus. I don't understand so much of it. So I'm going to go back now to what he called normal life, I would say. Jesus' death had crushed their hopes and expectations. They had all abandoned the Lord that night in the garden. Their hearts were stabbed with guilt. After three years of teaching, they ran away when the pressure truly hit. Of course, Peter's denials, three denials, was a special source of guilt. Jesus' resurrection had renewed their hopes, but they were still reeling and some, somewhat numb from the overload of emotions. I think, I think the disciples just felt like they needed to have some kind of control. I've got to get back to control. My life has been so out of control these last few days. I've got to grab onto something that I can understand. I'm going to go back to fishing. Peter said, I go a fishing. Do you know what Peter didn't say? God, what would you have me do? Heavenly Father, I'm in a place now where I'm overloaded. I don't know what to do. I don't hear him saying that. 
what he said was, here's what I am going to do. And when he did that, the others said, you know what, we're going to do that too. His self-will became an example to all the others. And they all fell lockstep behind him. Hadn't Jesus expressly taught him, along with the other disciples, that they were being trained for the specific purpose of catching men? Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. At the very beginning, he told them that. These three years have been fishing training. Going around, and he's preaching the gospel. And they've watched him. They've been trained to win men. Had it all been for nothing? What good is this degree that we earned from Jesus if we're going to all fall flat on our face after the first pressure comes? Jesus is going to leave anyway. He said he's going to go to heaven, going to leave us. We might as well go back to doing what we know. It's interesting, and I found this interesting. Back in chapter 5 of Luke, I'll just read it for you here, but in chapter 5 of Luke, this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Now, what I just read you is at the very end of John's gospel. This is the very end. Jesus has, has gone to the cross. He was buried, rose again, and he's been revealing himself uh, to different groups of people, and he's about ready to ascend and go to heaven. This is the very end of his earthly ministry. But at the beginning of this earthly ministry. Let me read you this in Luke 5, beginning of verse 1. It came to pass, as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's now preaching and teaching. And saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep, and let down your nets for a drought. Well, Simon answered and said unto him, Master, as if to say, Master, we're the fishermen. We're the professionals. We, we know how to fish. Now, now, we haven't caught anything, but we know how to fish. <laughs> and Simon answering said, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. But, nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes, and their net brake. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help him. And they came and filled both the ships, so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished. And all that were with him at the drought of fishes which they had taken. And so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. Notice, and Jesus said unto Simon, to Peter, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. Notice the similarities here. 
At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he performs this incredible miracle, and they fill up these two boats of fish after, after fishing all night and catching nothing. It's incredible. Jesus said, okay, go back out just where you were, catching nothing, and try it again. Now, I don't know to this day what it was that made them willing to do this. They had to be exhausted all night long out there catching nothing, and this guy shows up and says, go do it again. But they did it, and an incredible miracle was performed. Why? So that Jesus would have the credibility to tell them, I am going to teach you how to catch men. This was the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. In verse number 4, chapter 24, John, But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore. Now remember, we're going back now. This is the end of the chapter, end of, end of uh, uh, the book of John. Jesus is getting close to his ascension to go to heaven. He's standing on the shore. The disciples once again, after all these three years, are out all night long. After they, John said, I'm going to go back to fishing. And they spent all night long catching nothing. Apparently not even, a, not even little, a little fish. Not even a little bluegill. Just nothing. Nothing. In the morning. Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. So on the shore, Jesus stood there, but they didn't recognize him. Now this was after a grueling and non-productive night. Jesus appeared, but they didn't recognize him. He was some distance away. He was on shore, and the light was probably still dim in the early morning hours. That encourages me because Jesus is always there to guide us following those long, dark, non-productive nights that we sometimes go through. How many times does Jesus appear to us and we fail to recognize him? He was there to guide them, to provide for them, and to comfort them. The Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22 says, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it hath pleased the Lord to make you his people. And it pleased the Lord to make all of you who have put your faith and trust in Jesus his people. It pleased him. That brought him pleasure. You're bringing him pleasure by being here this morning. You're bringing him pleasure when you lift your voice and you sing praises to him. Isaiah 41.10 Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Isaiah 41.17 When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue Faileth for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Verse 5. Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? Now they answered him, No. I didn't hear him say this, but I think that Jesus answered them warmly. I think as he hollered out to the ship, he answered them, he hollered out, with a, a warm expression. Yeah. This uh, calling them children was not demeaning. In this culture, it was not demeaning. 
this, this past week I was pumping gas in my car. The gas attendant walked by and he says, you having a good day, young man? I felt like saying, have you looked in the mirror lately? A young man. He either needed glasses or else he meant the term in an engaging way. And I'm going to take it the second. It's engaging. Young man. I'm not a young man. Um, and they were children. But the term used in the original was very common just to be just to, as, a, as an affectionate term. And I believe that he called out to them with no condemnation in his voice. After all their failures, now think about it. After all the ways they had let Jesus down, all the many things that they had done against him, no condemnation. Now their decision and self-will to go back to fishing, Jesus still patiently and lovingly connected with them. In verse 6, And he said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. Which to me is hilarious. Okay, they've been fishing all night, and apparently they've been on the left side of the ship. Oh my, haven't caught anything. And Jesus said, How about putting the net on the other side of the boat? And these poor, tired fishermen are thinking, you got to be kidding. There's no fish over here. Why would there be any fish over here? On the left side of the boat, there's no fish. Why would there be any fish just these few feet to the right? It makes no sense. And once again, for no written reason here, they cast, therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Something made them put the net over here, and they couldn't haul it up. It was so heavy, full of fish. The disciples had toiled all night with no results. I'm sure they were ready to call it a day or call it a night. We're done. But this voice from the shore hollered out apparently with such authority. This man must know what he's talking about. Perhaps this is a well-seasoned fisherman, which he was, that is telling us that the fish are over here. It's also interesting, it was not a suggestion. I looked it up. It was in the imperative. He gave them a command. And he had, it was given with no hesitation. Perhaps his confidence caused them to overlook their immediate resistance. For whatever the reason, they complied, and they reaped a massive reward. Verse 7, Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It's the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girt his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, and did cast himself into the sea. This disciple whom Jesus loved is the way that John, writing his gospel, refers to himself. Instead of saying, I did this, or John did this, is the one that Jesus loved. John saw a miracle and recognized it as the work of Jesus. John, I'm sure, remembered at the beginning of his ministry three years ago, John was there to see the same miracle. The very same, we spent all night fishing, no fish, and Jesus told us to go back, and then we couldn't bring all the fish up. I remember that, John said. This must be Jesus. And something about that voice, 
Something about that voice. John shared an exceptionally close relationship with Jesus, making him extra sensitive uh, to his voice. And of course, John 10.27 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, a man that had been blind was healed by Jesus. He experienced the miracle, but he did not know the miracle worker. The Pharisees heard of it and questioned the man that had been blind in John 9.24. Then again called they the man that was blind and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. Verse 25, he answered and said, well, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. I don't know anything about that man. But one moment I was blind, the next moment I could see. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Our job as disciples is to share with spiritually blind men the reality of Jesus working in our lives. John recognized it to be the work of the Savior. He did not attribute it to coincidence. In verse 8, And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land, but as it were, two hundred cubits, dragging the net with fishes. As soon then as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon, and bread. The disciples were greeted on shore with a welcoming fire. Remember, they've been out on the water all night long. And they're frustrated because they had caught nothing. And now they're exhausted because they had to bring all this fish in. It's so heavy. But when they get there to shore, they find a welcoming fire and inviting meal. Wow, you smell that? Oh, we're so hungry. Jesus showed them compassion. By the way, few things show compassion like a good meal. There's just something about it. It just, it, it, it just shows somebody, whoa, that they cared. Times, times that we've been under pressure. Somebody knocks on the door, gives us a call. There's a meal there. The Lord knew exactly what we needed and when we needed it. It was so encouraging. It's interesting. It says that they were fishing about... 200 cubits out. Well, this is approximately the length of a football field from shore. Now, you know that the, the voice travels significantly over water. And so for Jesus to stand on shore and to holler out about a football field really would not be that big of a deal on the water because sound travels. The task of Dragging the enormous catch even that far would have been very taxing on their tired bodies. Verse 10, Jesus saith unto them, Bring of the fish which ye have now caught. 
Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of great fishes, and hundred and fifty and three, and for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. Interesting. This time the net didn't break. Hundred and fifty-three big fish. This time the net didn't break. In their excitement, the disciples must have momentarily forgotten the fish in the presence of the Lord. And he had to remind them, finish the job, bring the fish in. The exact number of large fish here is mentioned, suggesting that one of them must have taken the time to count. One, two, three, 153 fish. Verse 12, Jesus saith unto them, come and dine. Come eat with me, guys. It's time to eat. And none of the disciples durst ask him, Who art thou, knowing that it was the Lord? By now they all knew. Jesus then cometh and taketh bread and giveth them and fish likewise. They all knew by now it was the Lord. And Jesus served his disciples. I love that. Jesus served the disciples. Remember, one of the last things Jesus did was to, to, uh, to wash their feet. A sign of humility. He took out a towel and he girded himself with it and he washed their feet. Now he's serving them a meal. This particular meal was the last one they would share prior. That meal, the last meal they had shared, was prior to his crucifixion. This one would be the last one prior to his ascension. Verse 14, this is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after that he was risen from the dead. The third time he had shown himself to this assembled group of disciples. Twice before he had been with them, once where he confronted Thomas about believing him. So there's some similarities. Similarities between the earlier miracle and this miracle. First of all, they fished all night and caught nothing. Jesus told them how to fish. These professionals, he said, here's how you do it. And they hauled in great catches. I guess Jesus knew what he was talking about. You think? Jesus reminded Peter in the end that his call to Peter was to catch and clean men, not fish. Peter said, but I go a fishing. I'm going to go back and leave this and go back to what I know I'm supposed to be doing. Even though three years before, Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And for three years, he taught him how to be a fisher of men. And when Peter faced that trial there at the end of the three years, he gives up and goes back to fishing fish. Now, I'll grant you, sometimes men stink. But I've yet to be around a bunch of men that smell like a bunch of fish. We often miss the works of Jesus. In John 21, 15, he says, So when they had dined, Jesus saith unto Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? I don't know for sure what the these are, but I think I know. Do you love me more than these? Well, what are the these? I think it's what... Peter had gone back to. He loved to fish. He loved fishing. And he had right there on the shore 150 huge fish. 
Peter, do you love me more than fish? And he saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And he saith unto him, Feed my lambs. Two more times he says, Feed my sheep. Jesus performed many signs and wonders that were not recorded in the Bible. And I believe that Jesus often performs many signs and wonders in our lives. But because of our lack of faith, we do not realize. It was the spring of 2018. My wife had lived in a beautiful home in, in Illinois that we had built there with the help of the church in 1995. It had been 23 years we'd lived in this beautiful home. But since we moved in, the garage had never been completely finished. And that, for some reason, was just always a concern. But not a big enough concern to do something about it. But that spring in 2018, I couldn't stand it any longer. I just couldn't stand it. Every time I'd go out and open my garage door, I got embarrassed about it because though there was, though there was tape put over the seams, there was no mud on top of the tape, so it wasn't complete, a complete job. And it was obvious that it wasn't painted. So every time the doors would go open, I'm exposing the world that I had never finished off my garage. Now, not for 23 years, it hadn't bothered me. But that spring, it was a burden to me. And so I started making arrangements. I borrowed the scaffolding from the church, and, because I had 12-foot ceilings in that garage. And, 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 and I got the paint I needed, and, and I got everything I needed, and I started, I got the mud, and I started mudding all the seams and going back over, and you know, that mudding and sanding process is such a pain. After I put the three coats on and sanded it all off, finally got it to where I could paint it, finally put a couple coats of paint on it. Now, now I'm no longer embarrassed to show off my garage. A few weeks later, I was sitting in my living room, minding my own business, after church. And a phone rings, and I pick it up, and it's Randy Peterson. Now, I didn't know Randy. I knew of him, but I didn't know Randy. Randy told me how they'd been trying to contact me because the pastor here had, had resigned, and they're, they're looking to fill the pulpit. Long story short, my wife and I came out, we candidated, and we put the house up for sale. And God enabled us to make a very fast turnaround with that sale. You see, I didn't know what God was doing. I didn't know that it was God telling me, you need to get this house ready to sell, because I had no intention whatsoever to get rid of that house, because that was going to be our forever home. But God said, I got a better plan for you. And so I went out there, and you know, while I'm, while I'm working and sweating and trying not to curse, I didn't see God's hand of blessing. But as soon as we got the call and started seeing all the pieces coming together, we stood in amazement at what God was doing. Sometimes it's being delivered from a close call in traffic. Sometimes it's an easy fix when you take your car in for service. <laughs> 
Sometimes it's that strength that carries you through a traumatic event in your life. But as disciples, we must always be alert to what the Lord is doing in our lives. And we need to be prepared to cast the net on the other side. It makes no sense. We've been working and working and working and working and working doing it on this side, Lord. Why in the world would we want to do it on that side? And he simply says, if you'll trust me, I'm going to do something great in and through you. Trust me. So this morning I conclude with, what's God asking of you? That doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense at the time, but what is God asking of you? And is it possible that, 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 that what makes sense to you doesn't make sense to God? And so it's time to pull that net up and to take it to the other side of the ship and to drop it, expecting God to do something great. You and I, we serve an awesome God. And that awesome God, that God who did such incredible miracles of the Old Testament, parting the Red Sea, can you imagine? You think he's lost one iota of strength today? Do you think that he somehow cared for them more than he does you? Do you think he somehow does not want his, his name glorified as much today as he did then? Perhaps it's because believers are unwilling to look. I want us to bow our heads and our hearts and pray. And as we do, what's God speaking to you about this morning? What's God doing in your life that doesn't make a whole lot of sense right now? Is there some hurt that's come into your life recently that you can't explain? Instead of getting upset with God or bitter at Him, perhaps you can say, God, I don't understand what you're doing, but you said you'll never leave me or forsake me. And so I'm going to trust that what you're allowing in my life is to bring you glory. Oh, don't let anything stand between you and your relationship with God. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you for this time, and I thank you for this epilogue to the book of John. I thank you for speaking to the hearts of your disciples back then, and I thank you, Lord, for speaking to our hearts today. Holy Spirit of God, would you please open our hearts to your leading. With no one looking around, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. As you came in this morning, do you know 100% for sure where you're going to go when you die? Do you know for sure that you're saved? Has there ever been a time in your life where you have confessed that you're a sinner to God and trusted Jesus and Jesus alone to save you? Have you ever done that? If not, you could in the quietness of this moment. I wonder, is there anyone here that would say, Pastor, I do not know for sure that heaven is my home when I die, but I sure want to know, would you pray for me? Anyone like that? Pastor, pray for me. I don't know for sure where I'm going when I die, but I want to know. Please pray. Anybody? Put your hand up so I can see it. Back down. Anyone? 
I think I'm talking to an auditorium of saved people. If that's the case, then you believe in God and believe in the Spirit of God. And you believe that God is all-powerful. With that in mind, would you allow God to be powerful in your life? What are you holding back? Dear Lord, thank you for this time, and thank you for allowing us this privilege of studying your word. Thank you for meeting with us. Continue, I pray, the work that you've begun, for we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.